The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Can either of you think of any situation in which a relatively new judge? blows a case this badly in a fashion that the court of appeals any court of appeals turns around and says this clearly this loudly you know you really have to stop acting like this because i can't i'm benjamin wittis and this is the lawfare podcast december 5th 2022 On Thursday afternoon, the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals issued a ruling in the amusingly captioned case, Trump v. United States of America. The three-judge panel vacated District Judge Eileen Cannon's order appointing a special master to review the material seized at Mar-a-Lago by the Justice Department and it ruled in scathing language that she had no authority to entertain the case at all. To go over it all in front of a live audience on Twitter Spaces, Natalie Orpet, Lawfare Executive Editor, and Scott R. Anderson, our Senior Editor, joined me in the Virtual Jungle Studio. We went through the decision page by page, We talked about whether things would speed up now that Judge Cannon's ruling is out of the way, and we talked about what kind of message the 11th Circuit is sending to a new judge who seemed to be willfully intervening on the part of the ex-president. It's the Lawfare Podcast, December 5th, an 11th Circuit Mar-a-Lago debrief. Scott, get us started. Can you give the briefest of overviews of the history of this case to situate people uh, before we get into what the Court of Appeals did? Essentially, this is all a product of the search of the Mar-a-Lago estate this past summer, which resulted in the FBI recovering an array of government documents, including a number of classified documents, more from Mar-a-Lago that had been withheld despite uh, an earlier subpoena over the course of the summer by former President Trump and or other people uh, at the Mar-a-Lago estate. This information obviously is relevant to an ongoing criminal investigation by the FBI and federal law enforcement about the potential mishandling of classified information and government documents. But shortly after it was seized, former President Trump filed litigation in district court in Florida, essentially seeking uh, a pretty extraordinary remedy of imposing a special master to review the seized evidence before it can be used by the government. 
a district court judge there, Judge Eileen Cannon, uh, was appointed by former President Trump, granted this gesture or granted this request, uh, essentially saying they would impose a special master. The federal government initially appealed this decision to the 11th Circuit just in relation to a subcategory of documents that bore classified labels. The 11th Circuit held that, in fact, Judge Cannon was incorrect to try and impose the special master procedure, at least on those documents, um, on those bearing that sort of label. Former President Trump then appealed that decision to the Supreme Court because of the procedural posture under 11th Circuit rules. It could not go on bonk. Supreme Court did not grant cert. Um, so that decision pulled classified documents out of the universe of review. There was then an appointment of a special master, a dispute between the special master and the uh, Richard Deary, a, a former district judge in New York, uh, and Judge Eileen Cannon, where Judge Eileen Cannon overruled him on a, a set of timing matters. Shortly thereafter, Justice Department motioned to expedite his rev- its appeal that had already initiated in the 11th Circuit of the special master order for the rest of the documents. And this is the result of that motion now, several weeks later, which basically tracks almost exactly the logic of the initial ruling by the 11th Circuit in regard to classified documents. That's not surprising. Two of the three judges are the same, but pretty summarily hands down a a pretty broad rejection of the logic on which Judge Cannon had imposed herself to assume the authority to assign a special master and of the arguments that former President Trump and his legal team were presenting as to why that was appropriate. Uh, So Natalie, before we get into the nitty-gritty of what the court did and uh, what Judge Eileen Cannon did below. Give us a a little bit of sense of why this case matters, uh, what turned on it, what is the consequence of uh, the circuit court's uh, ruling yesterday. Sure. So I think this actually um, is very much underlying the tone and and tenor of the decision that we will discuss shortly. But what had happened in practical terms, um, based on the various procedural developments that Scott just described, is FBI had uh, obtained a lot of materials and then was suddenly told, you cannot use these for an investigation. Um, After it won the appeal and obtained the stay on the ruling as to a subset of those documents, the classified documents, it was again allowed to use whatever that means, those uh, classified documents in its investigation. But because it has been still on pause with respect to these other documents that were seized pursuant to a lawful warrant, the, the investigation, any investigation that may have relied in any manner on those documents has been on pause um, until this decision came out. So in practical terms, uh, what has to happen after this decision is it goes back to Judge Cannon, um, it's remanded, her her order is vacated, it's remanded with instructions for her to dismiss the entire case. Because not only is it the case that Judge Cannon's order had put the investigation on pause for practical purposes, it's actually worth taking one more step back beyond that, which is to acknowledge the truly bizarre posture of a civil action filed in a different court 
intervening in a criminal investigation. So the lawful search warrant upon which the search of Mar-a-Lago was executed was signed off on by Magistrate Judge Reinhardt, also in Florida, but not the same district judge as um, Trump filed this civil action, which then purported to, or in fact did succeed in putting a criminal investigation on pause. So there is a, a true bizarreness to a civil court putting on pause a criminal investigation that was being undertaken through a different court. All right. So I want, Scott, your sense of how big a deal this is. The decision, the special master decision, had already been stayed with respect to the classified material, which is, of course, the heart of the case. To what extent is this the Justice Department and now the special counsel kind of mopping up and getting rid of the case? And by getting rid of the case, let's be frank, getting rid of the judge. And to what extent does the case itself or does the order that is now going to be vacated actually have practical implications along the lines that Natalie describes? Was this actually in your best guess and judgment, holding anything up? You know, it's a good question. I have no doubt that this was an obstacle to the investigation. You know, the Justice Department asserted as much in its brief. At the same time, though, you know, the Justice Department really didn't actually motion for an expedited procedure on these non-classified matters until after it became clear Judge Cannon was going to extend the window in which the special master was operating. They actually said in their September 30th brief that sought expedited consideration of this case, they basically made the point saying, well, originally the schedule that Judge Cannon had laid out would actually kind of resolve the special master process even before any briefing would be completed before the 11th Circuit on the existing schedule the 11th Circuit had put out. And and it didn't say as much, but it was kind of implying that was fine okay, well, if it's only going to delay us like a month or two, we're okay with that. If it doesn't apply to the classified material that that Justice Department already won. But then it noted, but then Judge Cannon came in, reversed in order Judge Deary, the special master, had given in terms of requiring former President Trump to kind of make assertions of privilege on a rolling basis to try and keep things on the aggressive timeframe and kind of unilaterally without even consulting, the parties extended the deadline by at least two weeks and implied that it may budge even further. And that seemed to be the straw that broke the camel's back and drove the Justice Department, which at that point had gotten a pretty overwhelming victory, the logic of which would seem to extend much broader from just the classified material to all of the material, the whole special master process. It came to break their back and say, we're going to go forward and, and pursue this broader appeal on an expedited basis and try and just get rid of the special master process altogether. That process has been ongoing at the same time. You know, it's faced some delays and some frustrations, but Judge Deary has been pretty diligent about pushing and frankly, pretty openly skeptical of a lot of the claims by former President Trump, particularly around privilege. And so, you know, as I mentioned before in, in our prior discussions of this, I think there are scenarios where it seemed like the Justice Department may have been willing to say, we can live with certain levels of review in a case that's extraordinary for the sake of being able to move forward on the more essential parts of the investigation. So like I said, I, I think they probably have been able to do a lot of investigating in spite of this blockage, but this takes away this kind of awkward um, separation between the documents and evidence is collected, or will at least once it, the final round of appeal, whatever may come next, is completed, which should happen relatively quickly. And that means it's now back in a much more conventional zone where the FBI and Justice Department can 
do what they need to do and would normally do with the broad swath of evidence they've collected, classified and unclassified. Yeah, so I I want to uh, foot stomp that point because we have this impression that there is because of this collateral attack on the investigation through Judge Cannon, the implication has been that there's been a lot of delay and confusion resulting in it. And what it seems to me what the 11th Circuit did is say, all that's gone, the case is gone, and the investigation can proceed according to the usual process. And that strikes me as having big implications for the ability of Trump to further delay, particularly using this particular judge who's been a kind of effective instrument for that. So, Scott, before I ask Natalie to dive deep in the substance of the opinion, I want to just ask you to flesh out your point about subsequent appeal. It seems to me there's only really two options here. One is to ask the 11th Circuit to go and bonk. The other is to go to the Supreme Court. Neither of them seems very promising. Am I missing something? No, that's my read on this as well. Uh, Folks may remember the last 11th Circuit ruling, um, which specifically, uh, you know, kind of stayed the existing motion for the special master, order for the special master for the classified information. That was not subject to en banc uh, appeal under 11th Circuit rules. This would be by my reading of the rules, although I'm not a frequent litigator, so I might be reading them wrong. I'd welcome correction if other folks know better. But uh, that that restriction is primarily on kind of intermediate orders and temporary orders that this is not that this gets rid of um, the special master order altogether. And so would be, I believe, subject to en banc appeal. So they could take it en banc and then the Supreme Court or to the Supreme Court. We already know the Supreme Court wasn't willing to entertain an argument that this special master order was appropriate in regards to the classified information. The ar- legal arguments are almost identical. I mean, this opinion looks a lot like that prior opinion. Supreme Court was not swayed to grant cert there. I think it's not realistic to expect them to have a very different view here. Certainly enough to, not enough to, to sway, you know, four members of the court. And, and in terms of en banc, you know, this panel is not a panel that you would say is somehow disfavorable to for, towards former President Trump or not representative of the 11th Circuit. In fact, it's you know two Trump appointees, um, I believe three Republican appointees, William Pryor, a pretty notable judge, um, kind of a conservative stalwart and well-respected conservative judge in a lot of regards. I don't think people will look at this and say, hey, you might have a lot more luck on the en banc level. Um, you've got a weird panel here. Let's take this en banc and expect something out of it. That said, I fully expect former President Trump and his attorneys to chase down whatever avenues of appeal they have available to them, which could and probably will mean both, I suspect, um, meaning en banc and Supreme Court, for the simple reason that this has always been a stalling measure and a public relations measure. This has always been an effort to say, hey, somebody's mistreating us here. Let's play the victimhood card that is very much part of kind of the toolkit we see in framing uh, former President Trump's interactions with the FBI government, uh, particularly under the Biden administration. Let's feed into that narrative by pursuing these legal challenges, making this sound like a, a, a more improper conduct than it is, raising all sorts of constitutional questions without ever really articulating them. And I think they're going to continue doing that if nothing else, just to buy a more little bit more time and delay the investigation. Again, their only real winning game here seems to be to push the investigation until maybe former President Trump is a nominee for president again. If you can delay it that far, which seems a little ambitious for me. But if you do, then 
the political dynamics around prosecution become much more complicated. Uh, and so that seems to be their only game and delays part of that. But again, that'd be a very long delay. Uh, and it seems pretty hard to achieve with, with just these sorts of measures. All right, Natalie, tell me about the case of Richie. It's the key case that this decision turns on. What is it? And uh, why did we all spend so much time over the last month and a half learning about the Ritchie case? Uh, Yes, the Ritchie case. So actually, a quick diversion just to say that I really enjoyed how the 11th Circuit opened this decision, which was to say, here are the four arguments that President Trump made. The government disagrees with all of them. Also, all of that is completely beside the point, because the only question that we really have to deal with here is whether or not the court even had the authority to consider these arguments, and it didn't. And and can I just interject on that point, that the way it goes from there into a finger-wagging didactic lecture to the district court as though she is a, you know, like college student or something, you know, where jurisdiction is the authority to decide the case and you don't get to create it where it doesn't already exist. It has this, this, let me lecture you small school child tone to it that would be just unacceptably patronizing if she weren't so flamboyantly wrong. Yeah, and I, I think we should come back to that because I think they they said they they did it in an interesting way, though I thought. Um, but we we can circle back to that, and I'll I'll respond to your question about Richie. Um, so the Richie case um, was a Fifth Circuit decision binding on the Eleventh Circuit after the Eleventh Circuit became a new circuit, which is designed as a test. It's uh, called by the court to be an exacting test and is meant to decide whether or not a court can exercise equitable or anomalous jurisdiction. So federal courts are courts of limited jurisdiction. They can't just hear anyone who has anything to say in front of them. There has to have to be specific parameters around the types of parties or the types of issues, et cetera, that they hear. And as I was previewing before, this is really a very odd case because um, Trump filed as a civil action in a different court than the one that was already overseeing the execution of a search warrant in the uh, government's criminal investigation, this this request for a special special master and an injunction, sort of, although it isn't really clear that that's what he was asking for in the first instance, but that's what he ended up getting. Um, So the Ritchie case um, has four factors associated with it. It's very clear from this opinion in um, sort of the lecturing way that you indicated, Ben, that the court wants everyone to understand that each and every one of the four Ritchie factors must be met for equitable jurisdiction to be appropriate. And so as is something that we, um, Ben and our colleague Quinta Jurassic and I wrote about when Judge Cannon's decision first came out, the very first Ritchie factor which is cited in case law as being truly indispensable, et cetera, et cetera. No one was arguing that it was met. And yet Judge Cannon um, went ahead forward with finding that the Ritchie test had been met. But just to run through them quickly, and then we can uh, dive in a little bit. 
the first Ritchie factor is that the government has to have displayed a, quote, callous disregard for the plaintiff's constitutional rights. The second is the plaintiff has to demonstrate that they have an individual interest in and need for the return of the material that was seized by the government. Um, The third is that the plaintiff would be irreparably injured if the materials were not returned. And the fourth is um, whether or not the plaintiff has an adequate remedy at law um, for redress of the injury. Yeah. So just to, uh, I want to set up a kind of dramatic reading of some of these uh, passages, because I actually think they're very funny. But to do that, we have to talk a little bit. uh, Everything Natalie said about Richie is exactly right. I have one thing to add to it, which is that the distinction that Richie is drawing, right? Normally, if the government raids your house and there's something illegal about it or something inappropriate about it, your remedy is a suppression motion if and when they indict you. And if they don't indict you and, you know, maybe you can file a, you know, a 1983 action or something, but trying to get your property back through uh, the exercise of, of, extraordinary jurisdiction is an extraordinary remedy. That's where the anomalous or, you know, or uh, that's where the term anomalous jurisdiction comes from. It's it's anomalous. And so the the point of the Ritchie test is to try to distinguish between those situations in which you sort of have to wait until the government, you know, indicts you and you can move to suppress based on whatever defect you're claiming and those situations that are so extraordinary that you know the court should get involved even while the investigation is continuing so natalie i think it's on the top of page 11 if memory serves let's take a look at the way the the court characterizes the ritchie test as a whole and whether the government has met it yeah, I think, well, the, the I'll, I'll read the sentence on that page that uh, I think is what you're talking about and certainly came, I, I took note of, which is, to avoid unnecessary interference with the executive branch's criminal enforcement authority, while also offering relief in rare instances where a gross constitutional violation would otherwise leave the subject of a search without recourse, this circuit has developed an exacting test for exercising equitable jurisdiction over suits flowing from the seizure of property. Yes. And then if you skip down to uh, the next paragraph, I think you see what the court's anxiety here is. Uh, They write, he makes arguments that if consistently applied would allow any subject of a search warrant to invoke a federal court's jurisdiction. We have emphasized again and again that equitable jurisdiction exists only in response to the most callous disregard of constitutional rights And even then, only if other factors make it clear that judicial oversight is absolutely necessary. So, Scott, I read this as the court saying, come on, if you if you get us involved in this pre-indictment, every criminal defendant in the world before they're even a defendant is going to bring a suit. I mean, that, that is clearly what they're saying does that have merit as far as you're concerned? Or is that just sort of a, 
a conservative panel saying, you know, this will open the floodgates of the court to everybody. No, I mean, I think it is merited. Um, but there is an, I mean, there is another argument that they address as to why this is appropriate, but is one they reject pretty handily. And that is that former President Trump is different. It's an argument for exception. It's an argument that because of the dynamics around this case and this individual, they warrant some different standard from other individuals. They actually say this quite expressly on page three at the end of their introduction of their opinion. They say, in considering these arguments, we are faced with a choice. Apply our usual test, drastically expand the availability of equitable jurisdiction for every subject of a search warrant, or carve out an unprecedented exception in our law for former presidents. The latter is what former President Trump has been arguing throughout this. All of the arguments that his counsel have brought forward are often very broad, very vague arguments about potential constitutional risks. They make a point in the footnote in this opinion that at oral argument, counsel for former President Trump basically said, you need the special master process just to make sure there wasn't a constitutional violation, just in case there was. This extreme prophylactic argument, this idea that because of the separation of powers or whatever concerns they might be that apply to former presidents, you have to be extra, extra careful. And that warrants this exceptional standard. And the court rejects that, I think, for pretty reasonable reasons there. This is a kind of method we've seen former President Trump apply frequently in the past, particularly when he was in office. There was a very strong idea that, you know, and that continues to be with a president in office, separation of powers concerns give them a lot of benefit of doubt in a lot of different contexts. And now he's trying to carry that argument into the former presidency. And to some extent, it's going to have some sway. I mean, I don't think we should fool ourselves that this argument is now dead in the water after this opinion. Remember, the Justice Department approached appealing this opinion very carefully. They focused first on the narrow part of documents for which they had the strongest argument, classified documents, and only it came to this appeal later, again, by my right reading, at least after feeling like they kind of ran out of choices from just Judge Cannon. Although, you know, that's that's a lot of inference on my part. But the key point being, we're going to see this argument come forward again, and it may have more sway in other contexts. But here, the court's pretty clearly saying, well, look, either we completely make up this law about former presidents and adopt a rule, or we have to kick this open for everyone to give you what you want, former president. And we're not willing to do either. And that's really, you know, where the president, former president's arguments just fall flat. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, Lawfare listeners. Ben Wittes here. I want to tell you about the first time I got a report from the folks at Delete Me. It was shortly after I started using the service back in 2022, and they sent me their first privacy report. I have since gotten eight others, and it contained some shocking information. They had removed my data from 56 separate data brokers, 
that this had included 133 separate records, including 621 individual pieces of personal information. Uh, the data broker with the most information about me was a company I'd never heard of called People by Name. And here's the thing. Since then, every couple of months, I've gotten another privacy report from Delete Me, and it always contains more information that they have removed from the data brokers about me. In the second report, they informed me they had removed my stuff from 41 data brokers, and that the one with the most information about me was called HLEC. I have no idea what HLEC is. So the other day, I got my latest report, and it includes 15 more data brokers with my personal information, 113 pieces of personally identifiable information. Big culprit this time is something called my life. Well, I want to tell you that they don't have my life anymore. And that is why I recommend Delete Me. As this little anecdote shows, there's a lot of my data out there. And these companies keep acquiring it and making it available to anybody who can pay. And I have uh, slept a little bit more easily ever since I found a, a solution to this problem. And I want to stress, as I do every time, that I started using this before Delete Me started advertising with Lawfare. Delete Me finds and removes any personal information you don't want online, and it makes sure it stays off. And that's the point of this little story that, you know, they keep coming back. You can get it removed once, but they'll put it back. And then Delete Me comes and takes it off again. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web and in the process helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing, and phishing scams. Delete Me sends you regular personalized privacy reports, just like the ones I've been describing, showing what info they found where, where they found it, and what they removed. And critically, as this story reflects, it isn't just a one-time service. It's always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. It does all the hard work of wiping you and your family's personal information off the web. Data brokers hate Delete Me, which is why I like it. Your profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me, now at a special discount for our listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and use promo code lawfare20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and enter code LAWFARE20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20, code LAWFARE20. All right, so let's, uh, let's examine the funny part of the opinion, which is when they actually go through the Ritchie standard. So the first prong of the Ritchie uh, test is callous disregard for constitutional rights. Uh, Natalie, what does the court have to say on that subject? The court says, the callous disregard standard has not been met here, and no one argues otherwise. The district court's entire reasoning about this factor was that it, quote, agrees with the government that, at least based on the record to date, 
there has not been a compelling showing of callous disregard for the plaintiff's constitutional rights, end quote. None of the plaintiff's filings here or in the district court contest this finding. All right. What about the second Ritchie factor, uh, which is whether the plaintiff has an individual interest in the material whose return he seeks? Yeah, so I, I can't skip quickly to the exact language, but the basic conclusion um, while I scan for it is that he, he simply um, reversed the standard of who needed to show an interest in something, and the district court allowed for that reversal to happen. So basically, what a plaintiff is supposed to show to prevail on this factor of the Ritchie test is that they have an interest, they meaning the plaintiff, has an individual interest in the materials that were seized and needs them back. And instead, what Trump purported to show and Judge Cannon accepted was that somehow Trump had shown that the government did not have enough of a need to keep it, which is expressly the opposite of what has already been shown in um, having a search warrant approved. So, Scott, on page 16, uh, there is a the discussion of the third Ritchie factor, which is the irreparable harm standard. And, uh, you know, again, the court rejects this with the back of its hand. But you made a point about this this morning that I thought was really interesting, which is that the court seems to treat Judge Cannons as almost a litigant in the case rather than as the lower court. Um, that whose work it's reviewing. And this paragraph at the beginning of subsection C strikes me as a pretty picturesque example of, of your point. So talk about the point and uh, whether and, and this uh, possible example of it. Sure. The, the language that you're, you're referring to, I think, but let me just read it out for folks, is that they note that in his, meaning former President Trump's jurisdictional brief, plaintiffs suggested only that the government's continued custody of documents similar to his passport was likely to cause significant harm. And again, the district court stepped in with its own reasoning and then puts it in the words of the district court, the logic of why this prong may or may not have been satisfied. It's a pretty notable assertion of a role of the district court, really clearly signaling that the panel views them as providing this argument of its own volition. And throughout the opinion, we really see the court grouping Cannon's arguments and the plaintiff's arguments together. To some extent, that makes sense because, of course, she was granting their motion. But at least in my experience with appellate opinions, usually you try and, you know, give the district court a little bit more of a benefit of a doubt, at least in how you frame arguments, even when you're reversing them. Because when you put them kind of hand in hand with each other, implying that the district court's doing the party's work for them, that's a pretty big accusation. And they never come out and say it as an accusation, but you read language like this and it's pretty clearly implied in my mind. And in my mind, that that is a pretty big shot across the judge cannon saying, you're doing something inappropriate here. And maybe we're not going to come out and say it exactly like that. But, but we all kind of see it and we all kind of know it. And, and that's not something that you should be doing acting as a litigant. You need to be have a little bit more, you know, neutrality than that. Yeah. And actually, just to emphasize, I think actually the, the following sentence, this sentence of the following first sentence of the following paragraph um, emphasizes this even more because uh, the court goes on to say plaintiff has adopted two of the district court's arguments, you know, which is exactly not the way that um, litigation is supposed to proceed. A, a court is not supposed to be helping one of the parties develop its argument. Yeah. So 
I mean, Judge Cannon is a very new judge. I have never seen any court of appeals. I'm trying to think of examples where courts of appeals have treated district court judges this roughly. And I can think of a few, but they tend to be in situations in which the court of appeals has a lot of experience with the judge being willful. Um, I'm thinking about, you know, ju judges, I don't want to name names, but judges who, you know, have a famously contentious relationship with their court of appeals get reversed a lot. There's a relationship, a kind of hostile relationship there. Can either of you think of any situation in which a relatively new judge blows a case this badly in a fashion that the court of appeals any court of appeals turns around and says this clearly, this loudly, you know, you really have to stop acting like this. Because I can't. You know, <laughs> I don't name any names. I can think of a few cases where you see sometimes pretty firm language and often a little bit of a, a maybe aggressive tone by the court of appeals. Um, I can think of a few cases where I've seen that uh, manifest in the past few years because you do have district court judges, particularly new ones who I, maybe they make mistakes. Sometimes they see it as part of their role to kind of push the envelope a little bit in various regards and float ideas. I think that idea tends to get hammered out of district court judges the more time they spend on the court, but it's not unprecedented. Here, though, it's, it's really the attribution not just of error, but of ulterior motive. That's what really sets this apart to me. Um, you know, it's not just that they're reading the law wrong. They're pretty clearly framing Justice Cannon as advancing the cause of former President Trump. And while, again, it's implicit, it's not explicit. I don't think they would go that far. But that's that's a pretty damning way to frame things. Um, certainly problematic for any judge, um, even a young judge who, you know, are they because she's young, because she's new, I, I suspect they wouldn't want to be, wouldn't be hesitant to be too harsh on her. But this is pretty harsh, I, I think, if you read even a little bit between the lines. Yeah, I don't think you have to be that much between them. I, I think, you know, from the first paragraph of the opinion to the last, this is, in a never-raised-voice kind of way, a very, very harsh opinion. So, Natalie, talk to us about the last Ritchie factor. Sure. Uh, so the last Ritchie factor is whether or not the plaintiff has an adequate remedy at law for redress of the grievance. Um, and the court's point here is that Trump hasn't even established what sort of harm or uh, grievance he has experienced other than what any other criminal defendant who's, uh, or not even criminal defendant, but anyone else who has been subjected to a search warrant has experienced, which is he would please like his property back. And so he has he has failed to prove that there is no other adequate remedy at law because it's not clear that there is a remedy at this stage anyway. Or even that it, it's not even really alleged that there's a violation to remedy. Right, exactly. Okay, so the court then comes right at the end, page 19, section 4, Scott, to this point that you alluded to earlier, which is, uh, and I thought it was interesting that the judges actually included a section here, because it's not something that the president really argued, which is that, well, there's a, kind of another possible basis for 
you know, you can't get there based on the Ritchie factors because he swings and misses on all four of them. But maybe there's another basis to get there, which is that the rules are different for ex-presidents. And the court considers this important enough to have, you know, a separate section addressing it. What do you think... I, I mean, I was not really aware that Trump had advanced this argument or that the district court had really either. And so I guess my question is, do you think that the point here was that the Court of Appeals is saying we're reading the subtext here and the subtext is treat Trump differently and we're rejecting that? Or did somebody actually advance the idea that there should be a separate ex-president test? I think the former, and it has to be the former, because because the latter would just be almost bordering on the absurd. You, you would have nothing to cite, nothing to look to it, because it's an unprecedented scenario, right? They're pulling in, again, what we've seen former President Trump's counsel do throughout this process is that they pull in inferences about potential malign motives premised from the, I think all of us would admit, uncomfortable circumstance of one president of one party and his administration investigating a former president of another party to whom he defeated an election, whether that person concedes that or not. It's an awkward situation. It does raise, you know, on objective description, potential concerns. It also implicates a number of constitutional sort of interests. But again, former presidents, they don't weigh quite as heavily as former President Trump would want them to weigh in a lot of regards. And he's trying to invoke executive privilege and a lot of other privileges and doctrines that really are for current presidents, not for former presidents. But you knit all that together, and, and this is where you get is this idea that your argument is for one of exceptionalism for a former president. And in calling it out and, fr- and squarely rejecting it, I think the 11th Circuit really is actually doing a doing a service here. I mean, they're making the point that you can trot out these arguments about making an exceptional standard and maybe there is an argument here. Maybe the Supreme Court will step in now or the 11th Circuit on Bank will step in and say, "No, actually for former presidents we do have to apply a little bit different standard to think of this differently." But they're going to have to do it kind of expressly and make that a real point and justify that sort of distinction. And the 11th Circuit doesn't seem that as one that it's able to make uh, or that it sees as logically sound or appropriate here. As it notes in the close of the section, it says to create a special exception here would defy our nation's foundational principle that our law applies to all without regard to numbers, wealth, or rank. Pretty foundational principle of American law um, that they feel is implicated here. And I think bringing that context is really important. Again, I wouldn't read too much into this, into thinking that this means that the idea of any special kind of benefit of a doubt that that former president might get is dead in the water. Again, there is there is lots of space in the law where there's judgment calls and deference, and a lot of judges are still, including possibly these judges, will still be inclined to give former presidents a little extra oomph, a little extra benefit of a doubt in a variety of contexts, but not to the extent of throwing away legal standards. And I think that's really the point they're making here. This is a bridge too far to say the law doesn't apply as written to the former president, even if there may be a little more flex in the joints for former presidents than for folks that don't have the same nexus of interest surrounding them. All right. We are going to go to audience questions momentarily. Before we, uh, while people are queuing up, Natalie, you know, this is now the second event in a week and a half, two weeks, the first being the appointment of a special counsel to take over this and the January 6th case, they've come in pretty rapid succession. 
and they both tend to move things forward. Do you think we are close to the end of this investigation and the charging decisions component of it, or should we still expect to sit waiting for a long time while we're uh, while the investigation progresses, what do you think is left to do? I think, unfortunately, we really don't know um, because it's we have no visibility into how far into the investigation they are, and you know to what degree of finality are the memos on making charging decision recommendations. But what I do think is important, nonetheless, is. Doing investigations are, needless to say, it's it's a ton of work. And so freeing up um, resources and and getting, a, getting rid of this extraneous case that, that was having an impact, you know, unclear how large, unclear how much the investigation was really being stymied by the inability to use these particular documents from Mar-a-Lago and have to turn instead toward relying on other things, you know, we don't know. But the fact remains that DOJ was dedicating resources to having to deal with this case. And um, once it is dismissed, it will not have to anymore. And um, there is, uh, thanks to this special counsel appointment, there is now a new boss in charge who is going to probably restructure and or at least be thinking about things holistically in a way that we don't know if it has happened before because the special counsel was charged with um, overseeing two different Trump-related investigations, not only this one. So I think, you know, there there are definitely things happening behind the scenes. I just don't know how much that tells us about a time frame toward ultimate indictment decisions. Scott, do you have thoughts on time frame? I, I generally agree with that. I think we're still a ways away. I mean, I think what we would most likely expect to see in a case like this is an effort to build us, if they were to ever consider indicting former President Trump, um, which we don't know is on the table, but certainly the evidence seems to suggest it's a possibility they have to at least think about. You know, you would want to build the strongest cases possible because of a lot of the political and constitutional historic factors around an act of that sort of gravity. And that means I suspect that they're going to work really hard to try and flip someone who has knowledge of and can testify to the president's interactions with all of these affairs. They actually have a fair amount of evidence of his direct involvement, including the fact that classified records were mingled with his very personal effects, like his passport and former passport in his personal office. I mean, that's actually quite damning. But in a case like this, I think they want to at least try and get additional testimony. And that means first we're going to see, you know, indictments and conversations with lower ranking people um, and try and get them to flip and cooperate. We haven't seen any whispers of that yet. Um, that also is one of those things that it might be useful to be have a more complete picture with the non-classified and classified information because a bigger universe of people you can tie to these potential criminal actions. And so, you know, until we begin to see some murmurs of that, uh, unless they're very good at keeping it quiet and it's usually hard to keep that entirely quiet, I don't think we're, we're anywhere close to getting really any sort of high-level indictments out of this investigation yet. I am going to mildly dissent from the two of your consensus. I think this investigation is going to move faster than I, you guys do, though I very much agree with you, Scott, that the first indictments or the first pleas will not uh, involve the former president, but they will involve somebody who is being squeezed. 
All right, uh, let's go to audience questions. Auntie Rua Conan, the floor is yours. Thank you, Ben. So, uh, Scott, you mentioned that um, there's bound to be more delaying tactics still in store, and you also mentioned that uh, you find it unlikely that uh, they would extend all the way to when uh, Trump will be a candidate again. What is your estimate on how how long these uh, two stages in the delaying tactics will uh, give a reprieve? And you, you may recklessly speculate if you want to do so. Thank you. Well, as much as I love recklessly speculating, I'll, I'll pass on that invitation for the moment. Um, you know, I don't think we really know. I fully expect them to pull out other tools intended to try and delay things. I don't really see any clear avenues for them to do so until the investigation moves to some phase where they're actually taking legal action that touches on Trump or folks around Trump. Um, you know, maybe they will uh, make additional arguments elsewhere about some of this evidence. Certainly, if the investigation spreads to other, uh, you know, maybe jurisdictions, like there's talk about documents being at, in other Trump properties around the country, if somehow those become involved, they might see other opportune jurisdictions. But, you know, part of the reason why I think this avenue was appealing to former President Trump and his counsel is that Florida and the 11th Circuit is a relatively favorable jurisdiction for him and for some of the arguments he might appeal at least on kind of superficial characteristics like political character and number of judges Trump appointed, things like that. And it really didn't play out for them here. In fact, pretty solid rebuke once you get past the district court phase by a panel of pretty conservative, otherwise friendly seeming judges. Um, and so, you know, I don't know if they'll have a lot of hope in those efforts. And certainly there's not likely to be much more luck in, you know, the DC circuit or DC district court, which is the other place that seems like there could be jurisdiction here. Maybe they'll have other tricks up their sleeves, but I, I suspect the more delay we'll see once other kind of procedures kick in. But Natalie and Ben, is there anything you can think of that they might uh, trot out to try and, and kick the ball down the road any further? I actually was wondering the same thing. Um, I I can't, I mean, I suppose there is always some creative collateral proceeding that could be created, but I cannot think of anything procedurally that would help delay this further. So historically, there are a number of devices that uh, potential defendants use in cases like this to delay things. One, the, the most prominent, of course, is the challenge to the appointment of the prosecutor. So this is the collateral attack that gave rise to the case of Morrison v. Olson in the 1980s. I think that is very unlikely to uh, have any legs here because the authority of Merrick Garland to appoint uh, uh, Jack Smith is pretty clearly spelled out. And it's not like, just like there was no wave to attack Mueller on that basis. I don't, I don't think that's a plausible line here. There is, of course, the uh, second approach, which is that you allege that the prosecutor has done something illegal or inappropriate. Uh, the normal example of this, this was done quite effectively in the case of Ken Starr. Uh, they tied Starr up in all kinds of litigation over ethics uh, matters, none of which uh, proceeded or, or none of which turned out to have merit, uh, according to the courts, but which did require an enormous amount of time to litigate. The other, a particular version of that that was used then that can also be used in 
a situation like this is to file complaints over supposed uh, leaks, particularly of grand jury information. Uh, that's a co- sort of common way of, of going about it, all of which creates a lot of work for the prosecutors. It is not clear to me that it actually slows anything down to go back to Auntie's original question. Um, but these are common tactics that people will use in situations where, you know, they're trying to tie up the prosecutor's office and, you know, buy time or just raise the cost to the prosecutors of pursuing these matters. It's a fairly, these are some of the fairly common uh, tactics. I think in the in, in this case, um, there was a, a real deficiency in the, the action that they filed, which is that it, it actually doesn't allege that the government did anything illegal. It's just a lot of smoke. And it seems to me if you're going to file a search warrant, a challenge to a search warrant, it really does have to allege that there was something deficient. And that was you know, covered up in this case by uh, the uh, very lawless actions of the district judge. But now that the 11th Circuit has moved in and corrected that, I'm not sure that there's anything left to do in that space unless you're going to say this search was illegal and here's why. I may be missing other uh, valuable dilatory tactics on the part of possible defendants, but uh, those are the ones that come to mind in this kind of case most frequently. All right, we are going to wrap up since there are no more questions in the queue. Uh, thanks to our panelists, Scott R. Anderson and Natalie Orpet. Thanks to you all for listening. Thanks, everyone. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. And thank you to Kara Schillen of Goat Rodeo, who it was also produced in cooperation with. Kara Schillen was the engineer for this complex mix of Twitter spaces and our usual recording technology. Hey, folks, you need to do your part to... Uh, support the Lawfare podcast because we are, uh, you know, chugging along producing content like this on short notice so that you can know what happened uh, at the 11th Circuit the other day. No one else does this kind of stuff and you should become a material supporter of Lawfare, which you can do at patreon.com slash lawfare. That's patreon.com slash lawfare. The Lawfare Podcast is edited by the great Jen Patya Howell. Our music is performed by sometimes Lawfare Podcast guest Sophia Yan. And as always, thanks for listening. <laughs>